This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Stu does America. Head to blazetv.com slash stew. Help us push back against the rapid, unscheduled disassembly of America. Use the promo code stew to save 10 bucks. If you're watching on YouTube, give a like to this video right now. Subscribe to the channel. Hit the bell for notifications. Do all the things. We appreciate it. Connor Boyack is here to talk about Biden's failures when it comes to the education of our kids. Ron DeSantis and Elon Musk have something special planned for you. We'll tell you what it is. But we start by doing the dawn of the default. I'll be honest, uh, every morning before we do the show, we have a call and we talk about what we're going to discuss on the show uh, coming up later on in the day. And pretty much every morning for the past month or so, someone has brought up, should we talk about the debt ceiling thing? And pretty much every day I've said, do we have to? I mean, really? This stupid thing that happens every couple of years. Do we really need to get into this again? Another time talking about the debt ceiling thing. You know what? Let's hold off until it gets close. Okay. Well, we're getting close. And so now it's time to talk about it. Now, there's a lot of qualifiers on what the government is telling us on this. We'll get into this in a second. But let me at least tell you what the government is telling us. Treasury confirms U.S. default as early as June 1st without debt ceiling hike. That's like saying, hey, this car's available for as low as $39 a month. I mean, if you put $26,000 down, you can get it for $39 a month. Uh, You know, uh, as early as is quite the uh, tip of the hand here. But in her third letter to Congress in three weeks, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said it was highly likely that the agency will be unlikely So it's highly likely that they will be unlikely to meet all U.S. government payment obligations by early June and as early as June 1st without congressional congressional action to raise the thirty one point four trillion dollar debt ceiling, which would trigger the first ever U.S. default. Now, of course, not really. It wouldn't really having not enough money to pay our bills, which is, again, not where we are right now, but it could be coming soon with no changes that still would not mean we would default on our debt. In fact, I would argue it's constitutionally impossible for us to do that for quite some time because we basically would have to turn off all the other payments in the entire government before we did something like that. Because uh, our debt payments need to be made, and that's what, of course, the Constitution gets into. We'll get into a little bit more on what the Democrats are trying to do on that front here in just a second. But there'd be a lot of things to turn off. There's a lot of turtle tunnels that can't be built for a while. There's a lot of things, there's a lot of waste in our government, a lot of programs that don't necessarily affect a lot of people, a lot of kind of silly things that we spend our money on that should all be ruled out before we would ever default on our debt. Default is something that really shouldn't happen. It's economic catastrophe. But of course, it's a tool that the left and the media are dangling over us every single day right now. Now, Biden and McCarthy have met. They describe a productive meeting, but no agreement is reached. Of course not. Uh, They say the two met face to face at the White House for the second time 
in two weeks in a show of goodwill after a weekend of behind-the-scenes clashes among negotiators, punctuated by a move by Republicans on Friday to halt the talks and accusations by both sides that the other was being unreasonable. What's funny about the negotiations in Washington is they'll just, they'll say, like, we're working on something behind the scenes that was productive, and they'll go in front of the cameras and just trash the other people. And, you know, that's a show for you. You do realize that, right? That's a show for you. They want you to believe that they're fighting really hard and they're really super duper mad at each other. But in reality, you know, that's not usually the way this plays out. Certainly, if you were trying to get to a goal of a negotiation, you're trying to meet in the middle somewhere, you wouldn't go out publicly and trash the person you're supposedly trying to work with. That's not how this is supposed to happen. Yet both sides do it all the time. It's just a bonkers process from beginning to end. And if you wanted it to get crazier and crazier and crazier, maybe you do what the liberals are doing now, trying to come up with a crazy, you know, I've got an idea. It's just crazy enough that it just might work. Like, you know that scene in every weird movie where they just like, I've got this wild idea that can turn all this around. The left is going down this road and trying to do it. And they're being shot down by... None other than Ezra Klein of the New York Times. That's how bad this is for the Democrats right now. Liberals are persuading themselves of a debt ceiling plan that won't work. Now, there's a couple different approaches here. Both of them are completely ridiculous. Let me bring you through them closely if you have not been following this nonsense. And if you haven't, I applaud you because this is just idiocy. President, here's one, idea number one. President Biden simply declares the debt ceiling unconstitutional. <laughs> Pointing to the 14th Amendment, which holds that the validity of the public debt in the United States shall not be questioned. Five Senate Democrats, including Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, are circulating a letter calling on Biden to do just that. On Friday, 66 progressive congressional Democrats sent the president their own letter making a similar case. That shows how deep the insanity is on the left. 66 congressmen came and said, hey, yeah, we could just just what if we just say it's unconstitutional? Now, of course, that won't work. But it's important to note that Biden is entertaining it. Biden is at least saying publicly he is entertaining this idea. What he's saying is, ah, well, it might be too late to implement it. But he is actually entertaining this idea and wants to hold that door open for the, f the future. Now, Biden is not George Washington. He's not president number one. He's not in the middle of a situation where he's trying to figure out whether these things are actually constitutional or not. He knows they're unconstitutional. If you remember back, to, let me give you a throwback name from back in the day, Timothy Geithner. Even Timothy Geithner, the old Treasury Secretary under Obama, said, no, of course you can't do this. We've looked into it. No, you can't. Everyone on earth who actually is in a decision-making position knows you can't just say the, the uh, debt ceiling is unconstitutional and you know, wing it. That's not how this works at all. Everyone knows this is false. We didn't just discover this in 2023. That's just not how this goes. So, uh, you know, it's, it's almost not even worth entertaining, honestly. Um, but they have not just that idea where they just say, okay, the 14th Amendment uh, suddenly gives us this right. Because, the, you know, look, the Constitution, and you go to Article 1, gives a very clear outline as to who holds the purse strings in this country. It's Congress. It's not the president. So Congress has these rights. Congress gets to make these rules. If Congress says there's a debt ceiling, guess what? They could do that. And that is already law. It's existed forever. It's not going to be overturned, certainly by this court uh, at this time. So they've got another really stupid idea. Now, the Treasury Department has a loophole in a 1997 law 
to mint a platinum coin of any value it chooses. Maybe, let's say, a trillion dollars. And then they could use that money to keep paying the government's debts. Now, I, I, I would argue that that outcome is literally worse than a default. Because a default, you could at least go to our people, people out there, you know, again, this is not, we're not going to go into default, but if we were to go into default, we could make the argument to the financial system that we're in the middle of a little political uh, issue. We've got a little political issue going on right now, but once that gets solved, we'll be able to get your money back. It's coming. You know we're good for it. We have the biggest economy in the world, blah, 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 blah. Now, a lot of people would not be persuaded by this, and it would be, um, it would be catastrophic, uh, at least for a time. Financially, we shouldn't try it. We shouldn't do it. We should pay our debts just like you should pay your debts, just like I should pay my debts. That's what you do. Uh, now, the government gets away with all sorts of crap that we don't get, a, get to get away with. But look, we should pay our debts. And that's that's going to happen. The trillion dollar coin is a totally different thing. Sure, we would technically not be in default, but we would be announcing to the world that our money had no value whatsoever. We could just Mint another trillion dollar coin whenever we feel like it, and we'll just, you know, see what happens. Why would you do any business with a company or a country that would do something like that? If you went to a place that was, uh, you know, um, uh, that was, uh, you know, going to uh, giving you a loan and the person you were uh, you're supposed to pay back the loan just said, well, I've got these fun bucks. I'll just pay it back with uh, shroot bucks from shroot farms. They, there would be no bank that would take the loan. They would not say, hey, I'm going to loan you money because you might pay me back in shroot bucks. And that's what we would be literally announcing to the whole world. I mean, not literally. It wouldn't actually be called shroot bucks, but it might as well be. I would argue the purchase of beets that could happen at shroot farms would actually be more valuable than what we were printing. It is mindlessly stupid. And the fact that they keep bringing this one up over and over again when they know it would not work uh, is just a, re it's a, just a reveal of how pathetic this effort is. Now, <laughs> Uh, again, Ezra Klein is, you know, again, you got to understand, Ezra Klein is a liberal. He's talking to liberals in a liberal publication. He's trying to convince liberals, to his credit, honestly, that this is idiotic. Okay, so he's not talking to us here. But he says the legality of the debt ceiling or a trillion dollar platinum coin doesn't depend on how liberals read the Constitution or the Coinage Act. It depends on how three conservatives read it, John Roberts, Brett Kavanaugh, and Neil Gorsuch, who are the closest Supreme Court now comes to having swing justices. And again, I mean, Gorsuch has had a couple rulings people don't like. Kavanaugh, I'm a little shakier than Gorsuch. Roberts, I'm really shaky on even calling him a conservative. You can tell it's not a conservative publication at this point. But, you know, Ezra is trying to uh, give his liberal readership some tough love here, a little, uh, a little uh, medicine uh, here, because they don't want to hear this, but these are fever dreams of their movement. This is a wild conspiracy theory, essentially, in action. The strength of the Biden administration's political position is that it stands for normalcy. At least that's how it was sold. The debt ceiling has always been raised before, and it must be raised now. But if the administration declares the debt ceiling unconstitutional, only to have Supreme Court then declare the maneuver unconstitutional, then Biden owns the market chaos that would follow. I'd argue he, he, he owns it anyway, honestly. But it's true in that, you know, look, there is no way this would be a positive direction to go in. I think Biden knows it. Likely a lot of these people are, that are making these arguments, maybe not Bernie Sanders, but like most of the people who are saying this are, are trying to use this as a a, a technique, a negotiation technique to scare the right into backing down because, hey, they may just try this crazy tactic and then you'll have no power at all. Now, 
there is some credibility behind this because of things the Biden administration has done before. They have done things like the student debt relief program, which is blatantly unconstitutional. They know it's blatantly unconstitutional, yet they did it anyway. Uh, the eviction moratorium, they knew it was controversial. Uh, they knew it was unconstitutional. They did it anyway. They've done several of these things that they knew couldn't really possibly succeed. I mean, the eviction moratorium, I believe that was the one that was really, literally, they were told about it in the Supreme Court before the case even went to the Supreme Court. They basically gave a preview, like a trailer of their future decision on this, on this issue. They did it again anyway. They've done this over and over and over again. So it's not impossible they would try this. And that's important to know. His point about Biden's presidency standing for normalcy, I know that sounds crazy to us, but in reality, it's why he's president of the United States right now. The American people, enough of them, bought that Joe Biden would say, okay, look, that that issue, that whole Trump thing, that was wild and crazy. I'm this old, boring guy. I'm going to come in here and be like a normal Democrat. Remember when I was vice president? Wasn't that kind of a boring old time? I wasn't tweeting stuff all the time. Everything will be fine. Vote for me. And enough people bought that to put him in the White House. He is not governed that way at all. He's governed as radically as any other president in the history of the United States. He's continually overturning blatantly, un, uh, blatant constitutional norms to get his way and see what happens. He's just giving it a whirl. What will happen? Will this thing get shot down or not? Often it does, but thank God we have the courts to do that. Now, fundamentally, when it comes to the debt ceiling, it's important to understand what we're asking for because the debt ceiling itself is sort of a weird concept. You know, we don't necessarily think about that in our lives. That's not how we run our, our household, for example. And, you know, there's a bunch of different kinds of debt ceilings. And I want to go through them real quick because it shows how absolutely extreme this has become. What is the number one version of a debt ceiling. This is the one you probably live by, okay? You do have a debt ceiling, you just might not think of it yet. And your debt ceiling is kind of like this. You spend less than you take in. That's your debt ceiling, okay? You spend less than you take in. That is fundamentally the basic version of a debt ceiling. If you make $100, you spend less than $100. That's how you do it. Okay, that is not the debt ceiling that we have, and it's not even the debt ceiling that we're discussing here. Then there's a second level of debt ceiling, which is a future debt ceiling that allows time to cut spending. Okay, think of it this way. Maybe you're not, uh, you're not uh, fully on the Dave Ramsey train here. Maybe you're not living within your means perfectly. Then what you probably do is you have a couple credit cards. Maybe you have some revolving debt. Maybe you have, uh, you know, some sort of loan against the equity in your home. Maybe you have a loan against your 401k. You have some access to additional money above and beyond what you spend. And then you slowly are paying that back. When you have a situation like that, let's make it simple with just credit cards, your credit card has a limit. So you have a credit limit that you know you can't go past. You know the amount of money you can access if you have to. Let's say you have a $10,000 limit on your credit card. Well, maybe you spent $5,000. You know you can spend about $5,000 more or you're going to bump into that debt ceiling and you're not going to be able to get money anymore. So what do you do in that situation? You make sure you don't spend enough to bump into that debt ceiling. You make sure you stay away from that limit because once you hit that limit, 
you're, you're, you're out of cash and stuff starts falling apart. Well, that would be an interesting approach for our government. Let's just say, we, you know, if we were at, uh, uh, I don't know, when we were at $10 trillion in debt, maybe we said, hey, you know what, let's make the debt ceiling $31.4 trillion. And we'd say, we've got 20 trillion dollars of room so we know right now we're not living in with our means but we have time and we just say okay we've got a 20 million dollar ramp let's spend you know if we have to get to 10 million of that 10 trillion of that fine but then we'll slowly reverse it and pay our bills back and everything will be fine maybe that would be rational be maybe rational in your household okay but that's not what the government wants at all either and not what it has what we currently have is a different kind of debt ceiling. Let's call it the negotiable debt ceiling, which basically is we have a limit that we all know when we set it is going to be hit. We all know that when, let's say right now, we're at $31.4 trillion. We all know if they raise it to $35 trillion, we all know we're going to hit it because we constantly spend more than we take in. We know in advance there is no hope for us to take in more than we spend. We have all just admitted that. And the government wants us to just believe that's the way it is. The, even the Republicans are like, well, this is what we're going to have to do. We're going to try to, we're going to negotiate around the edges. And, and this is be like, almost like a snooze button, okay? This type of debt ceiling is, you go in there and you get close to that debt ceiling and you say, oh gosh, we better do something about this. Let me just, uh, we'll pass a couple things here that will cut spending a little bit and we'll hit the snooze button and set it up a couple trillion dollars more and then we'll revisit it later if we continue to bump into it. We all know we're going to eventually, but we, it gives us a moment to at least think about it, right? We know there's too much spending here. Let's take a moment to just consider what's going on and then we can maybe try to not hit that next level as fast. Let's maybe cut a few things. Maybe let's uh, rework our revenue a little bit. Let's figure out a way to not bump into this in like two weeks, right? We'll negotiate about it. We'll, we'll, we'll get a couple of cuts in here. We'll make everybody happy and then we'll slide this back again. Sure, we're gonna hit it eventually, but let's at least take this time to examine our practices, okay? That's the third one. That's what Republicans are asking for, and that's basically what we've had for a long time. When things get out of control, we come together and we say, look, we've got to do something here. I know we're not really cutting debt all that much, but let's at least attempt to do something that shows the American people that we care. We're not just stealing all of our money from our great-grandchildren all the time. And so that apparently is still too conservative for the left of the media. What they want is the debt ceiling that gets raised every single time we get near it with no negotiation and no point. And honestly, what is the point of a debt ceiling like that? There is none. You might as well just get rid of it completely and never think of the debt at all. You might as well be in modern monetary theory, which is of course where all these progressives that sign this letter want us to be anyway. How convenient that is. It's really disturbing. They just want us to keep spending till the end of time. And the negotiation here, of course, is ridiculous. If you're telling me the outcome is potential economic catastrophe, of course you should give up something in the negotiation. Of course you should be talking and trying to figure these things out. If you're up against this thing, against the debt ceiling, and you're in power, and the other side has control of the House or the Senate, yeah, you're going to need to negotiate. That's just how this works. But that's something you should fear and something you should want to avoid. And we should disincentivize people going up to this debt ceiling over and over again. That's all the debt ceiling is. It's just to say, hey, this is really bad. 
can you guys do something about this? And over and over and over again, the left doesn't even want us to ask that question. That's crazy. Democrats will come out and they say these, they have this negotiation tactic, which is just bizarre. They say the debt and the default is coming. And if that default is coming, it's financial catastrophe. Okay, let's just take that, let's just take that as gospel for a second. The d- default is coming, and if it happens, it's financial catastrophe. But then they also say they won't negotiate on this because the precedent will be set that every time the debt ceiling comes up, we have to negotiate. Okay. But what is the risk of that precedent? What is the precedent they don't want to be approached? That precedent is negotiation to avoid default. Do you see the circuitous nature here of what we're talking about? The Dems are arguing, basically, that they might impose current economic default catastrophe so they can stop the precedent of future economic default catastrophe. What sense does that make? It doesn't. Unless the thing the Democrats or the Republicans are offering here is worse than economic catastrophe, which I assure you, it's very, very much not. It's, it's a minor set of cuts that, of course, we could handle very, very easily. If the Republicans are offering something that is preferable to economic catastrophe, then you should be in there either taking the bill that they've already passed and just passing it or negotiating for the best deal possible. I don't think at the end of the day, Joe Biden wants to head, uh, head into a re-election campaign in the middle of economic default and financial catastrophe. I think eventually they'll come to some sort of conclusion here and this will be pushed down the road a little bit, maybe a year, maybe two years at the most. And we'll all be back here doing this all over again and all over again. I'll be on the morning calls for this program saying, I don't want to talk about that again. Do I have to? There's no reason for this to be the case. What cures this is financial sanity. And it's the one little piece of medicine our country will not even consider. Let me tell you about Upside. See, why don't the people at Upside just run our debt problems? Why don't they do it? Why don't they step in and they can handle our financial crisis here in America? Because they're saving me money all the time. Well, maybe they could save our government some money, too. To get started, all you have to do is go to the free Upside app. You can use my promo code, Stu. I'd appreciate it if you did that. Because you also get extra 25 cents back for every gallon on your first tank of gas. Now, I've had this before. Save 25, 35 cents a gallon multiple times uh, over, over the uh, couple of years I've been on the Upside app. And it's not just gas. It's, you know, you can go to uh, restaurants, all sorts of stuff. You just pay as usual with a credit or debit, debit card. You follow the steps in the app and you get paid. In comparison to credit card rewards or loyalty programs, you can earn three times more cash back with Upside. Plus, they don't sell your personal info to third parties. They know that your information is a vital part of their trusted relationship with you. Upside users are earning hundreds of dollars a year. They've got great ratings on the App Store. Check it out. Download the free Upside app and use the promo code STU to get an extra 25 cents back for every gallon on your first tank of gas. That's real money. 25 cents back for every gallon on your first tank of gas. Go there now. Use the Upside app and use the code STU to claim your 25 cents extra back on your uh, first tank of gas on every gallon. Check it out now. It's the Upside app. Families have a lot going on. 
Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. In 1983, the National Commission on Excellence in Education warned, the educational foundations of our society are presently being eroded by a rising tide of mediocrity that threatens our very future as a nation and as a people. 40 years later, are things better or worse? What do you guys think? I've got an opinion on that. I think Connor Boyack does as well. He's the president of the Libertas Institute, author of the Tuttle Twin series, and of course, co-author of the new book, Mediocrity, 40 Ways Government Schools Are Failing Today's Students. It's available now wherever books are sold. I don't know, Connor. I, I don't think things have really improved over the past 40 years. It's a question that sadly almost answers itself these days, especially when we see a lot of the test scores coming out. Just a couple of weeks ago, the nation's report card found that only 13% of eighth graders are proficient in American history, which is just appalling. It's worse than failing. I don't know what you call it when it's worse than failing. What's interesting about the quote that you shared from the National Commission on Excellence in Education is that in another part of their report, they said, if a foreign government had attempted to impose upon America the very mediocre education we now have today, we might have viewed it as an act of war. As it stands, we've allowed this to happen to ourselves. And so if that was the case four decades ago, what's going on today and what does that mean four decades from now for the future of our country? Mm. Uh, so this didn't come from a foreign government. It seemed seems to come from our own. I mean, you know, you go back in, in the book, you, you talk about the history of, uh, you know, uh, in the Carter administration as we sort of elevated this to a cabinet position. And of course, that's what all good liberals do when they have a problem. They go to the government and they say, hey, if we make a big uh, cabinet uh, position or don't throw a bunch of money at this, we'll fix it. Government is there to be the solution. But that is not how this has played out. It, it, that's true. Uh, we need to also assign fault to all the Republican administrations that have uh, certainly not repealed uh, the U.S. Department of Education, but they've doubled down with things like No Child Left Behind and supported Common Core and all these centrally planned efforts to try and hack at the margins. Uh, there's the great quote from Henry David Thoreau, I think, where he says that for every thousand hacking at the branches of evil, there's only one striking at the root. And so for me, a lot of this is all these programs, all these reforms, all these things that we hear about, they're all marginal. I mean, they're important. We should talk about them, but they're not really going to reform the core problem that we're seeing in the government schools. I think that core problem is that they're not facing substantial competition. And so costs go up, quality goes down. They have no incentive to really substantially improve, which is why I'm such a big proponent of what are called education savings accounts, where states can unlock those, those education dollars and allow them to follow the child to a private school, a micro school, a homeschool, something else, so that the government schools feel a little bit of heat and suddenly now have an incentive to improve to try and earn the customers that they want to keep rather than just assuming that they get to keep them all. Yeah, I really want to get into uh, how we solve this uh, here in a second, but let's go through a couple of the problems because you really are outlining a lot of the real problems with our education <laughs> system. And one of the things that the left says, the media says all the time, is that the problem is these are underfunded schools. There's not enough money going to these schools. If they had the money that they needed, we'd have much better performance. Uh, but, of course, what do, you, what do you libertarians and conservatives want to do? You want to cut these budgets. Do these schools have enough money? 
Well, if you look at the school districts that spend the most per student per year, it's, you know, liberal bastions like New York and New Jersey and D.C. and some of these places where they're spending about three times more than the national average uh, that everyone else is. And yet they're at the bottom of education proficiency. They're doing the worst. Uh, their Cato Institute and others over the years have clearly uh, done the research on the data showing that over the years as spending has gone up, educational attainment has been flat or is declining. So it's it's clearly the case that more money does not equal improved outcomes. I mean, talk to the average homeschooling family or you know folks at a micro school family. You can educate a child pretty affordably if you're doing it right, if you're incentivized to actually focus on the individuality of that child and build a curriculum that best supports them rather than throwing them all in this one-size-fits-all system where over the years, all, where, I mean, all, where's all the funding going? That's what the you know people are always asking because teachers aren't being paid that much, catching up with inflation. What we're seeing across the board is massive administrative bloat in the government schools where they're hiring all of these uh, non-teaching administrators, and that has significantly ballooned in the past few decades relative to student and teacher growth. So that's where we see a lot of the inefficiencies going, which means that this program, these schools have really turned into a jobs program for adults. It's why the teachers' unions you know, protect them so fiercely. It's not really about the kids. If it was, we'd get rid of a lot of the bloat and we'd focus on more efficient efficiency. But so often we have these incumbents who want to now protect their turf, and that's what it's boiled down to. That's mm, a huge, huge problem. Another thing the left uh, are constantly argues is that, you know, this idea that basically it takes a village, right? Like the, you don't really have kids yourself. No one has kids yourself. You shouldn't be making those decisions. You need experts. You need uh, government officials to come in here and kind of guide you through this process. They're the experts after all, Connor. Uh, what, do you, what do you think of that argument? Is there anything there? Oh, boils my blood. Just the other day, the Biden Secretary of Education just came out and was saying, oh, for teachers, they know their kids better than anybody else. Uh, and his was a plea for, you know, teacher autonomy and, and not having legislatures dictate what teachers can do. But the mere fact that he calls them their kids, Biden has said this several times. He, When he talks to teacher groups, he says, they're your kids, they're your kids. They're not their kids. At best, these teachers are stewards of those children for a very limited period of time, but they're not their kids. And so often the left forgets that, uh, you know, the village is subservient to the family, not the family to the village. Yes, it does take a village. We're all in this together. We all need one another's help. Community institutions play a powerful role in the development of the child. But all of those things are supporting mechanisms to the core family. And it seems like the left and, and many beyond the left want to upend that societal model and place the state at the forefront and that the family should be subservient to the state. I think that's a horrible model. I think that's uh, that is the path to tyranny, and sadly, that's the path that our public schools are structured to take us down towards. No, it really is amazing. Um, I want to give, play you this clip uh, from uh, from the governor of uh, of North Carolina, Roy Cooper. Uh, he is. I mean, look, I think one of the big solutions here is school choice. I think it's really, really important. It's one of the most important things that's happening right now in the country. Uh, a real movement is happening. And honestly, we've been talking about this issue for so long, it never seemed like we had to get anywhere on it. All of a sudden, since COVID, we've really made real progress here. It's, in, it's been incredible. And of course, this is really threatening the teachers unions. It's really threatening the politicians they've propped up over the years. To the point now where the governor of North Carolina is calling school choice a state emergency. This is incredible. Watch this. I'm declaring this state of emergency because you need to know what's happening. If you care about public schools in North Carolina, it's time to take immediate action and tell them to stop the damage 
that will set back our schools for a generation. Here's what's happening in the next few weeks. Their private school voucher scheme will pour your tax money into private schools that are unaccountable to the public and can decide which students they want to keep out. Oh, please. I, I don't know how I'm going to get through this segment. I, as someone who pays for private school, the fact that they're calling uh, my tax, oh, I, I can't even get into it. I'm going to go crazy. We're not going to have enough time. Connor, please insert some sanity into this moment. Well, I, uh, I've homeschooled my kids for a decade. Just this year, we also put them in a little private micro school. And it's, it's appalling to have to first pay taxes for everyone else's kids to a highly inefficient system. And then if I have money left over, I have the good fortune of being able to decide if I want to enroll my you know, children in a school or if I want to homeschool them. I think the governor is right. I think this is an emergency for their state. It's been an emergency for 40 years since <laughs> we were warned in 1983 that it was was a rising tide of mediocrity. Now, he's looking at it from the perspective that this is an emergency for the teachers unions and the folks who are very protective of the inefficient status quo and have made a good living off of mediocre performance. Every monopolist hates competition. And so when you create a competitive environment where you're unlocking these education dollars and now they're flowing to other places, of course the monopolists consider that a crisis because for decades they have not had to earn their customers. They have had to really work hard. They haven't had incentives and now they're feeling the heat. So I think he's right to see that it's a crisis. It's just sad that he hasn't considered the past several decades the true crisis for how much our education system has been declining. And I think a bit of healthy competition is needed because again, if this is about the kids, if this is ultimately about helping educate children, we got to do better and nothing we've been doing has worked. It's amazing. I mean, he said he's acting like parents being able to choose where to educate their kids is like a hurricane. It's, it's a state of emergency. It's like, how is this possible? Uh, Connor, before you go, what, what's the? Give me a minute on like what the state of this movement is. I mean, we really have seen movement here. I, I was hoping we'd get this done in Texas. It doesn't look like it's going to happen just yet. What's the state of the school choice movement right now? Well, as you pointed out a moment ago, Stu, it's exploded post-COVID. Polling on this issue across the country has grown by 10% plus across every demographic. So many people saw during Zoom, all the Zoom schools and all the problems uh, that was happening during the pandemic, excuse me. And and so polling has greatly increased. This has really turned into nationally a Republican-led effort, as is the case in North Carolina, where, as I understand it, the governor is going to get overridden in his veto because the Republicans are in control. So Republican legislators are seeing this rightly as a winning issue as it comes to elections and campaigns. They're seeing that parents are demanding this. My own state in Utah, where I'm based out of, I run a think tank here, Libertas Institute. We got Utah to be the fourth state to have this program. A few others have followed. So I think this is the future. It is the future. I know the teachers unions are going to just be kicking and screaming all the way. They were in Utah. They did in every other state that have tried to pass these. But I'll give you this little, little vignette. When the teachers union in our state protested our bill that was created creating one of these laws, these programs, there were about 200 people that showed up with all their posters and, you know, uh, shouting at the politicians and so forth. When we did a rally for parents and students and teachers to come out, we had 10 times the number. We filled the Capitol with over 2000 people who showed up demanding us. So the parents are mobilized. They're angry. They're fed up with the mediocrity that we've had for decades. They're seeing that this is a winning message, a successful program. So I'm very optimistic that we're going to see these education spending 
account laws uh, proliferate across the, the country in the years to come. Thank God for that. Connor Boyack, president of the Libertas Institute and co-author of the brand new book, Mediocrity, 40 Ways Government Schools Are Failing Today's Students. You can pick it up wherever you get your books. Connor, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thanks, Stu. Well, you uh, are probably like a lot of people. You probably throw pretty much everything at your liver. Uh, cholesterol, alcohol, toxins, Tylenol, statins, cigarettes, everything. That's why so many have a sluggish, fatty liver that makes, you know, makes us gain weight. It makes us unhealthy. It makes us uh, lose energy. For decades now, your liver has helped you with over 500 key functions every day. And it's time you help your liver with Liver Health Formula. Liver Health Formula is an all-natural supplement which contains 12 clinically proven botanicals that help recharge and protect your liver. So if you're looking to ignite your fat-burning metabolism, boost your energy, transform how you look and feel, try Liver Health Formula and receive five free gifts when you order today. They've got the bottle of blood sugar formula to help reduce sugar cravings, which, I mean, I just, if I, if I had any more Laffy Taffy in my life, I mean, I just don't even think I would, I would be alive. Uh, you also get access to four free eBooks that support every aspect of your health, none of which recommend Laffy Taffy. Uh, try Liver Health Formula today by going to getliverhelp.com slash stew, Claim your five free bonus gifts. Get liverhelp.com slash stew to try liver health formula. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions that's wonder made possible learn more at evernorth.com wonder well 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 we have a new entry into the presidential race on the republican side from the southeast tim scott yes tim scott is good <laughs> is in the race. He's a Republican senator, of course, from South Carolina. He is in the race. He kicked it off, I guess, was it uh, this weekend or yesterday? I don't remember exactly. I was off yesterday, as you may know. Uh, but he is in. He was expected to be in. He, he comes in that tier outside of the top tiers. Maybe we should do presidential tiers this week. Uh, you know, the, the top tier. Then you, you got some people who are in the race that don't have a huge chance of winning. Scott falls a little bit in between. I don't think he has a great chance of winning the actual uh, nomination, but he may make a little bit of noise, may have some good polls. Uh, you know, he's he's above some of the lower players, but certainly out of that top tier. In the you know, near the top tier, at least, uh, would be probably the number two guy on the list, Ron DeSantis. He is set to announce tomorrow, uh, is the belief, uh, on Twitter with Elon Musk. This is an interesting part of the story. In that, you know, you know, you know, you're trying to make a splashy announcement, where do you go? Well, Twitter kind of being seen as the biggest free speech platform now is one of the things that people are talking about. When it comes to social media, certainly that is true. Elon Musk has kind of said he supports Ron DeSantis already. He came out and said in a public statement he, that was the person he was uh, considering uh, as a good mix between uh, the craziness of the left and maybe some people on the right he doesn't like. I believe he voted for Joe Biden uh, in 2020, and I think he just recently confirmed that. So again, Elon Musk has never been a hardcore conservative, but seems to be supportive of Ron DeSantis here. 
And, you know, there are rumors of uh, large donations, perhaps, perhaps uh, going uh, toward the DeSantis campaign. We'll see if that winds up panning out. Uh, but that should be the case tomorrow. And I think really kicks off the campaign, right? Once DeSantis is in, we could start talking. We stop talking about how he's not even in yet. And we finally have two main candidates that are in this race. And I will say with people like, you know, uh, you know, people like maybe the North Dakota governor getting into the race, uh, you know, we have now entered this place where it does again look like we're going to have a couple dozen people running for president. I mean, this is not going to be a small field at all. So we're going to we're going to wind up. This is not going to be like one of these uh, back in the day where you had like George W. Bush and John McCain and maybe one or two other guys. That's that that, that era is dead. There's too much tension in these races now. So I think you're always going to have a dozen or two. Let's see if who can you know uh, navigate these minefields, because that's what it's going to be. Um, I will say uh, you want to have good strategists on your side uh, when you're doing this and want to make sure you have people who are super competent uh, out there on TV making comments for you. And you wonder if you're a Democrat, whether you would really want Aisha Mills on your side. She was on CNN. And one of the things that's been adopted now by the left and honestly, in addition to that, Donald Trump is to say that Florida is kind of a crap heap. Like no one likes it. It's awful. there. basically a hell hole. It's the worst place in the world to go. It's falling apart. I don't know that anyone actually believes that. Like, I, don't, I don't, certainly people who are constantly going there on vacation don't believe it, which is one of the reasons why I draw you to uh, Aisha Mills. She called Florida a terrorist state and then went on to say this. I just took my family to, to spring break in Florida recently <laughs> as a lesbian, as a black woman. I don't want to have anything to do with the place. Oh, really? Well, you took your family there. You, you'd think... You'd think if you thought a place was a terrorist state, you wouldn't take them there on spring break. It's just a weird parenting tip that I give to you. Maybe you don't have kids. Uh, I wouldn't bring my kids to Somalia or Sudan on spring break. And you probably shouldn't take yours to Florida if you have the feeling that it's a terrorist state. We will get you all the details on the announcement uh, as it uh, happens with Ron DeSantis and all the details here on uh, the race and how it's kind of coming together now as a real presidential race. Get ready, boys and girls. We're talking 18 months of this. Are you ready for that? We'll get into it a little bit more tomorrow. You know, buying or selling a home is already one of the most stressful things you can do. Make it easy with realestateagentsitrust.com. Now, I will say this. If you're going, if you're, let's say you're selling your home in New York and you're moving to Florida, you work, say you want to move to a terrorist state, uh, you're going to find really, really positive interactions on one side of, of that. Uh, when you're moving out of Florida, that's where you're going to get the positive things because you're going to wind up having uh, really high prices as you move out and then really low prices if you're going somewhere else. Unfortunately, then you have to live in a blue state. The opposite is true, too. You leave New York, you have kind of, again, the values maybe not as high as you'd want them to be. A lot of, you know, but it's, of course, uh, when you go down there to buy, it seems a little cheaper because the cost of living is better, but real estate prices are Elevated. The bottom line is all these things are complicated. There's a lot of moving parts and you need an agent on your side. Realestateagentsitrust.com is the place to go to find that person for you. It just uh, The team will contact you to make an introduction to the preferred agent in your town. They'll walk you through the process. Super easy. It's free to you. Why wouldn't you use it? Realestateagentsitrust.com. It's realestateagentsitrust.com. 
I'm sorry, this story just pisses me off so much. The Oakland A's, who are, you know, look, have been a terrible franchise here for a while now. They've got like, you know, 1,500 people in the stadium every night. They have an announcer named Glenn Kuyper, or at least they did. He had gone to the Negro League Museum and was talking about his experience there. And look, he butchered a word in the worst possible way, as he admitted immediately afterward uh, and said the wrong word, a, a, a racial slur. But of course, did not intend for it to come out in any racist way. He just, you know, look, the Negro League is not necessarily a word you're saying all the time. And he said it uh, the very much wrong way. Of course, they pulled him off the air. They suspended him. Now, the head of the Negro League Museum, uh, black players for the A's and former players came out in his defense and said, this guy, we know this guy. He's not racist at all. This is not who he is. Well, the A's suspended him and now have come back and have fired him for this. It's the only piece of evidence that he's ever done anything wrong. Uh, he somehow kept people watching these broadcasts of these terrible t uh, games that they have they've played in Oakland for so long. Uh, they're not moving to Las Vegas. He said uh, he'd been there for 20 years. I, uh, he will always have a hard time understanding how one mistake in a 20-year broadcasting career is term for uh, is cause for termination. And he said he wished they had considered his long record. But they didn't because our freaking country is insane. Back in a second. StuDoesMerch.com. StuDoesMerch.com. The place to go to get the best in conservative merch. We've been working on some new campaign-themed T-shirts that are going to be coming out pretty soon. Check those out. We have the Repeal the 16th Amendment mugs and T-shirts that are available now. They look wonderful on you, and they tell everyone you know that you think the whole income tax thing should just go away and leave us alone. Tomorrow, big presidential uh, announcement coming from Ron DeSantis. We will cover that and so much more. We'll see you then.